0: Welcome. This is Raul Lowry Contreras. This is the Contreras Report, Business Mexico, Issue 110. 110. Today, we're going to discuss a few things that have happened since we last uh, visited. Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, went to the White House, and President Trump. There's been a shakeup in the policing of Mexico nationally. This is very important, we'll discuss it in detail. The governor of Baja California, Jaime Bonilla, whom I know and I knew before he became governor. I knew him when he was a Republican office holder in San Diego County, elected by the people. Yeah, anyway, he's now the governor of Baja California and he, oh, sort of stuck it to the federal government the other day when he had his people take over a toll road plaza. A toll plaza on the toll road between Tijuana and uh, Rosarita Beach. Actually, it goes all the way down to uh, uh, Past Ensenada. Anyway, uh, his people took over the toll plaza. Hmm. I'll tell you about it because I went through it. Former United States and Canadian ambassadors to Mexico. Clean up your act, Mexico. You're going to be in real serious trouble with investors. Canada is the third largest investor, foreign investor in Mexico. We'll talk about that. Energy, yes, I've reported before that, that Lopez Obrador's people are trying to take over electrical engineering, or um, uh, uh, generating, I'm sorry, generating in all of Mexico and trying to turn it into a government monopoly, which it used to be. Well, everybody that disagrees has come forth. Filed all kinds of lawsuits, and I'll tell you what the Supreme Court did. Mexico rises in the COVID-19 catastrophe. Its deaths are now, uh, place it now as the sixth largest death country for COVID-19 in the world. A former deputy finance minister challenges AMLO, President López Obrador, because he's saying that the president is letting this epidemic and its economic problems sink Mexico, sink it. That will be our contemporary stuff, but I'm going to introduce a new segment, which I hope to, to relay to you from time to time. Usually when I have a, a thorough report about what's going on today, We need to know what happened before in Mexico, the history of Mexico to understand Mexico today. So we're gonna start a look back to Mexican history with pre-Columbian Mexico. We'll do that at the end of this broadcast. By the way, uh, if you wanna get hold of me, send me an email for whatever reason, you can. My email's not a secret, it's um, uh, hispanic commentator that's one word hispanic h i s p a n i c c o m m e n t a t o r at gmail dot com that's hispanic commentator at gmail dot com i'll give that again at the end of the podcast so if you don't have something to write with right now um Get something while I'm while you this is going on, and then I'll give it to you at the end of the program. Okay, Lopez Obrador came to Washington D.C. He flew a commercial flight. I, you know, he had to change planes, and uh, he and his party came by commercial. At least some of his party, I'm sure. Carlos Slim, who was with the party, didn't go on the commercial flight. Anyway, here's what some of the things. Here are some of the things that Lopez Obrador said in the White House. He gave a little speech. He calls the USMCA trade agreement, the US-Mexican Canadian trade agreement, quote, a great achievement. He says, USMCA allows, greater integration of our neighbors. USMCA will help generate more jobs and stem migration from Mexico into the United States. Illegal migration. The three countries, quote, to, are going to march together into the future. Donald Trump, quote, has treated Mexico with respect, unquote. I'm not gonna uh, uh, say anything right now. Uh, I'm just telling you what, what Lopez Obrador said in his speech at the White House. Quote, during my term as president of Mexico, Instead of insults towards me and, more importantly, towards my country, we've received understanding and respect, unquote. Donald Trump said, quote, that there has never, he, no, he said President Trump has never tried to impose anything on Mexico that violates the country's sovereignty and hasn't tried to treat us as a colony, unquote. I will say this. Apparently, uh, Lopez Obrador wasn't paying attention in June of of, uh, 2015 when Trump announced for president. That's when he called us rapists and criminals and said that Mexico, quote, was not sending its best people, unquote, to the US. Interesting. President Trump said, I have a, quote, An outstanding relationship with Lopez Obrador and ties between us and Mexico have never been closer and never been stronger. I won't say anything about that. Okay, is Joe Viernes, translated Joe Friday, coming to Mexico? Just the facts. Before he was elected president, López Obrador said neither the state or local municipal police in Mexico were functioning properly. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, I'll tell you what he meant by that. The police departments in Mexico don't investigate crimes like we're used to. They don't have detectives as a separate branch of a police department. Neither state nor local police in Mexico have had, up to now, complete police departments as we know them in America. Simply put, our local police departments in the United States have uniformed street police. Mexico does also. We have specialists in traffic. Mexico has the transito, policia transito. They have st- uh, local and state transit police and federal transit police. All they do is concentrate on road and traffic. That's fine. Our departments have investigators, detectives. Those of you who know me know that my stepfather, Jerry, was a, the youngest detective ever appointed in uh, the San Diego Police Department. He joined the department in 1948, and by 1953 for he was a bona fide ranked detective. So the Mexican police don't have detectives like we do, but backing up our detectives, we also have supplements, supplemented personnel or supplemented personnel in forensics, criminologists, psychologists, and in cases of big departments, lawyers. Mexico doesn't have any of that. The Mexican National Conference of Municipal Public Security, at a conference, they're mostly mayors, has voted approval of a federally formulated policing model that proposes to create investigative units within municipal and state police departments. President Lopez Obrador suggested this in 2019. He suggested, quote, super municipal police departments, and they're starting down that road. Hopefully, it will be successful. As I've told you before, in a few months ago, actually in December, uh, Jaime Bonilla took over as governor of Baja California. He won the election in 19—or, um, uh, I'm sorry— <laughs> In <laughs> in 2019, uh, here in Baja California, for a two-year term. For a two-year term, which I'll discuss in, in a few minutes. But here's what he's doing. He's governor Baja. He won with about 60 percent of the vote, which was very good, and the PAN party, which had run Baja California for 30 years, came in second. Okay. The other day, I left my house in Rosarito Beach, I'm heading north into San Diego. And uh, the first thing I did, of course, is check to make sure I had $2 for my toll because there's a toll plaza between here and Tijuana. And uh, so when I get to the toll booth, I have my money ready and I hand it to the the clerk or whoever it is, the cashier, and uh, they give me back my change. Usually I have change coming and a receipt and off I go. Okay, well... I have to be careful because if I don't have any money, I've got a problem. Okay, so anyway, I you know took the toll road, and, uh, and which I don't have to take. If I want to spend some time and uh, a few extra miles, instead of turning left on the main highway from where I live, I'd turn right, go into Rosarita, and then catch the free road to Tijuana. But there's a lot of traffic, and uh, it's a good road. Trust me, it's a good road. Three lanes in every direction, in both directions, between north and south, and uh, well maintained, well kept up, in contrast to what the road was like 50 years ago. It was a two lane road with potholes every 12 inches. Anyway, it's well kept up. It's usually all concrete and it's holding up well. Um, and it's free, but it takes me 25, 30 minutes, uh, which is about 15 more than I want to spend getting just from here to Tijuana. So I got to the, pole, the, the, uh, the toll plaza the other day, and lo and behold, there was no one collecting tolls. There were guys at each toll lane that was normally open, just waving cars through. I thought, oh, yeah, gee, what, what's that all about? Didn't think anything about it. So anyway, I went and did my chores in San Diego and came back late in the afternoon. And I got there and lo and behold, There's army and National Guard soldiers all over the place and federal police. There must have been 50 vehicles there. And uh, these guys are all armed, carrying their M16 rifles that they get from us, plus some machine guns that they manufacture in Mexico. And they had forcibly, I guess, taken the Toll Plaza back. Well, from who? Well, I didn't know until later, that it was from Governor Jaime Bonilla's offices. He had decided that he was gonna take the toll road, the toll booth. Baja California's governor, Jaime Bonilla, was trying to exercise state rights. And so he took the toll plaza. Says he wants to stop collecting tolls. The road between Tijuana and Rosarita, he says, should be free. The takeover took place on Tuesday evening. Wednesday morning is when I went through. Wednesday afternoon is when 50-plus Mexican Army and National Guard soldiers, plus federales, the federal police, arrived fully armed, ready for combat, and took the tolbos back from civilian political appointees. <laughs> Bonilla stood secretary of government, secretario de gobernación, Amado Rodriguez Lozano told the press that the state-federal dispute will be settled politically and legally after the feds had taken the facility back. Rodriguez Lozano says, quote, under no circumstances will this toll collection return. The governor's determined his determination is clear and forceful. He continued saying the safety of Baja citizens over quote, the collection of money to defray the expenses of the federal government, the option is very clear, if those are the two choices, to be in favor of citizens. Well, there's no problem. Uh, the, some uh, left-wing uh, radicals took over the Toll Plaza um, about a year ago, and they kept it for two months, but the, the federal government didn't come in and throw them out. Uh, They just let him go until it ran its course. So they were collecting volunteer contributions for what they call the tercer, um, los tercer años for seniors, because there's no senior, there's no social security like we have in the United States or Medicare. And so these leftists took over and uh, uh, collected voluntary contributions, didn't have to give any money. There was no way for them to enforce it. So. I don't know what he's talking about, about safety. So uh, what he said, he continued, we care about the public. There are others who are not from here and who have only been interested in taking money and taking it to Mexico City. Well, that's been a complaint of everybody in Tijuana since I can remember. Every From the time I was six years old to coming to Tijuana, when I realized that it was different than San Diego, where I was growing up, Um, I've heard that. They're stealing the money out of Tijuana and sending it to Mexico City, and that's true. That's exactly what happened. That's why Tijuana was the original sin city of the world, of the modern world. Uh, Prostitution and gambling and horse racing, all the things that many Americans find fun and drinking, of course, during prohibition, poured huge amounts of dollars into Tijuana and the Mexico City guys were more than happy to take it to Mexico City. But this Mexican highway here, it's right, it's within a hundred yards of where I'm sitting right now recording this, is Mexico City, uh, Mexico highway, federal highway number one. It's number one. That's its designation. And it's federal. And so when they built this road along the coast, and trust me, folks, I look over to my left, and what do I see? The ocean. And this road runs right along the ocean, practically on the sandy beach, wherever there are sandy beaches. And uh, uh, it's a scenic route all the way to Ensenada. Beautiful, beautiful trip if you've never had taken it. And then south, and I've been south on the road all the way down to Cabo San Lucas. Uh, It's a magnificent road and it's federally kept. Now the tolls are in the metropolitan areas in Ensenada and uh, uh, Rosarita Beach and Tijuana. I don't, you know, I rode buses before uh, when I went all the way down, so I don't really remember toll plazas being down there, but maybe they were, I don't know. Uh, But um, uh, the, the highway is a beautiful scenic highway. And it's expensive and it costs a lot of money. They cut a lot of hills on the ocean, literally on the ocean. Sometimes when you're driving along and you look over to your right, there's maybe 20 feet and there's the cliff down to the water. And if you're in a bus, you can actually look down and see the water. Yeah, if you're high enough. So the federal government collects the tolls, sure. And the road is uh, 57 years old from here to Ensenada anyway, and uh, uh, from Tijuana, from the border to to, uh, uh, Ensenada. But it costs a lot of money to build and it costs a lot of money to keep up. Uh, One point a few years ago, a whole section of it, maybe a quarter mile, 250 yards or so, just collapsed into the ocean because uh, it was a heavy rainy season and uh, uh, it just collapsed. So they had to build a detour route around it and then fix it up. That costs money. So the people that use the road pay the money. I told you that I have the option of driving a few extra miles uh, to my right into Rosarita and then on the free road to Tijuana. I have that option. I prefer, I prefer to pay the toll because it zips right along. Anyway, uh Bonilla won't get away with this. And I don't know what he's trying to do. He's of the same party as President Lopez Obrador. This is the second con job that he's tried to pull. Jaime, good old Jaime. Good old Jaime, he owns the radio station or did anyway in, in San Diego at 8.40 a.m. And uh, an Arco, he had an Arco self-service uh, with the store. And I don't know what else he did. Plus he made money off of the radio transmission towers that he owns just less than a mile from where I'm sitting right now. You know, the famous uh, Wolfman Jack, uh, hundred thousand watt radio stations uh, program that Wolfman Jack used to have uh, built his reputation on. It just floods the whole west coast of the United States. Well, Jaime Bonilla and his partners own those transmitters and they charge, I know they leased one to a station in San Diego, Uh, for $25,000 a month, a month. But again, this is Jaime Bonilla's second attempt to con the people. He ran for a two-year term. It was set up in such a way that uh, they wanted to get the state elections to coordinate with the federal elections. The federal elections are on even years, okay? For president and for the senators and deputies, okay? They're on even years. And the the state of California or Baja California uh, were on odd years, so they decided to to synchronize them. The people that run the state and they put it on the ballot, and the people voted for it. So this term is two years, and then it will sync up with uh, the federal the federal uh, uh, elections. Bonilla ran for the two year term. On the same ballot was the proposition to change the elections so that to synchronize them with the federal elections. So he won their governorship, and on the same ballot, the proposition won to change the election to synchronize with the federal elections. So the first thing out of his mouth was, I was elected for the five year term. Well, some people said no, especially the PON party, the Partido Acción Nacional. They said, no way. That's a totally separate issue. Anyway, he claimed that he didn't answer. Of course, the lawsuits flowed, and the Mexican Supreme Court, in a beautiful display of of independence, said, that's baloney. You ran for a two-year term. You can't can't just suddenly take the five-year term. That was approved by the people, but it was for the next election. For the next election. So anyway, he tried to con his way into seven years as governor and it didn't work. Anyway, uh, now he's trying to get to collect those tolls. I don't know how much money is involved. The government, uh, observers have estimated that there's maybe uh, 10,000, 15,000 cars a day and going in both directions. And at $2 a piece, that would be 20 to $30,000 a day. That's just that one toll plaza. There's another one just past Rosarita Beach. and another one just before you get to Ensenada. What are the prospects for investment in Mexico? Well, they've been very good in recent years, especially when the government decided to allow foreigners to invest in the Mexican oil monopoly that the government has had since 1938. Former ambassador from to Mexico from the United States, and former ambassadors to Mexico from the United States and Canada agree with the current U.S. ambassador Christopher Landau that Mexico is not, now is not a good time to invest in Mexico. Well that's the current U.S. ambassador appointed by Donald Trump. In particular, they say Landau says that AMLO's monkeying around with the energy sector is causing foreign investors. Some apprehension. At a virtual forum, former U.S. Ambassador Roberta Jacobson says AMLO is failing to demonstrate he welcomes foreign investment. That's a given, lady. He's always been anti-business, except for his friends. Ambassador Landau says that AMLO broke his promise to not change investment rules that were in place when he was elected in 2018. while well, he's trying to change them. Example. The López Obrador government fails to certificate or provide certificates of completion to 28 renewable energy generators generating facilities that are ready to operate. They're ready to go, to throw on the switch. They just need to be certificate. They need to be checked out. The engineering people need to check them out and say, yes, it's a go. AMLO not letting those uh, engineers get anywhere near the new facilities because he says that private energy generation adds nothing to the national energy grid. But that's not true. That's an outright lie. Actually, the private sector produces 47% of national energy. And he says it's nothing. Former Canadian ambassador to Mexico says, clear rules and a stable political environment are paramount to attracting foreign investments. Pierre Alari de that's his name, A-L-A-R-I-E, Alari, I guess it is, does not think the new trade agreement, USMCA, can fix the problems if the president is bound, or is determined to change the system That has been in effect for the past decade. Canada. I mentioned the Canadian ambassador. Well, it turns out that Canada is the third largest foreign investor in Mexico. 2019, they invested $2.9 billion, 9% of total investment in Mexico in 2019. The U.S. and Spain are number one and number two, and Canada is number three. A group of Canadian energy investors have written a complaint letter to the Canadian government complaining that AMLO is wreaking havoc with energy investments. That's strong language for Canadians. so that's my language, that's not theirs. Uh, In the complaint is that uh, AMLO has suspended final testing and certification of 29 energy generation producers, which I mentioned a second ago. AMLO's goal, they say is to limit private energy generation or to cut it back. The four companies, Canadian Solar Inc., ATCO Limited, Northland Power, and JCM Power. The companies claim that AMLO, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, is flirting with violating provisions of of the new USMCA agreement that went into effect on July 1. And here it is, the middle of July, and they're already charging Amlo with screwing around with it. Well, it's true. Actually, he screwed around with it. It may. Canadian International Trade Ministry says, "Quote: Canada shares these concerns, as Canadian companies have invested close to nine billion American dollars in the energy sector alone, including over three point one billion in renewable energy." Canada is concerned. The nation, of, the government of Canada is concerned. Energy in the Supreme Court. Well, it's uh, in May, the government, well, here's the status. In the middle of May, AMLO's government announced new policy of totally controlling energy generation and bringing generation back into federal government monopoly, like it used to be. Specifically, AMLO wants control of who, can generate electricity, where they can generate it, and how much to produce. The Minister of Energy issued this new policy on a late Friday night. He learns his lessons from Donald Trump, a Friday night publicity dump. The government restricts and wants to restrict private renewable energy that prevents more new and prevents the more new production and consolidates federal control into the Federal Electricity Commission. The acronym, by the way, is CFE. The new policy gives priority to using CFE-produced electricity. Currently, the government, was, uh, you know, before this policy proposal, the government was required to buy energy from the lowest cost producers. Private contracts exist from renewable energy companies like the Canadian companies I mentioned before, that they can sell, make and sell at a profit a megawatt hour for $20. CFE, the federal government, expends $141 for the exact same per megawatt hour. There you go, huh? AMLO's energy minister, Rocio Nali, rammed AMLO's policy through without approval from the Federal National Commission for Regulatory Improvement. The acronym is CONAMER, C-O-N-A-M-E-R and without a regulatory impact study which comes with public comment. He just issued it and said this is the new policy. Well, Cesar Hernandez, the head of Conomer, resigned. But first, he refused to support AMLO's push to cut out private energy generation. Justice Luis Maria Aguilar Morales of the Supreme Court suspended the new AMLO energy power grab, until the entire Supreme Court could rule for it. He ruled on the complaint filed by the f- another federal agency that AMLO doesn't control. The complaint was filed that the, that, that the justice re, uh, uh, ruled on. He was filed by the federal antitrust regulator, the Federal Economic Competition Commission. And the acronym is C-O-F-E-C-E, cofece It argued that AMLO's policy violated constitutionally enshrined principles of free competition. The Business Coordinating Council, that's the National Business Coordinating Council, the the largest business organization in Mexico, says this is just the beginning. 578 lawsuits have been filed against AMLO's power grab. And there's no pun intended. Mexican Employers Federation, and the acronym is Coparmex, C-O-P-A-R-M-E-X says, the ruling returns confidence to private sector investments, especially in the renewable energy sector. AMLO Lopez Obrador continues to attack private energy companies. Claims that private companies and the previous government of Enrique Peña Nieto dealt under the table to make deals and committed fraud. Says the original contract to buy private energy was set aside by a new contract that was secret with higher rates to be imposed. If true, Senor Presidente, show us the contracts. You know, if the guy was smart before he had his people announce the policy change, he would have had a call of press conference and he himself would have laid out this evidence and say, because of this fraud, because the people of Mexico are being ripped off, here's what we're going to propose, or here is what we propose. If these separate contracts exist, show them to us, Mr. President, show them to us. Holy cow. I just paid my bill every... I pay my bill every two months from CFE, electricity. I paid every two months, and it runs about eh, $4, $5 a month, $6 maybe a month. Many, many of that, uh, those megawatts, megawatts hour that, hours that I use come from uh, wind-generated facility in the mountains up here behind us in the uh, Juarez Mountains, Sierra Juarez. And uh, they are now owned mostly by SEMPRA Energy in San Diego, California, that buys some of that and uses it in uh, San Diego, in the San Diego power grid. The rest of it is used here in Baja California that the government pays $20 a megawatt hour for Okay, well, the bad news about the COVID-19 pandemic in Mexico is that as of uh, uh, this morning, 35,000 people dead, 300,000 total infections. On July 19th, there was a record 7,000 new infections, 12,000 in one day in Florida. That was 7,000 new infections in all of Mexico. But it is now fourth with the most COVID deaths in the world. And um, the US is number one, Brazil is number two, and number three is the United Kingdom, which is interesting because the United Kingdom is nowhere near as large as Mexico. In population, in Baja California, where I am, five hundred and six active cases out of a population of three million people. The exact numbers are uh, 300, 311,486, four eighty six, seven thousand two hundred eighty new cases, thirty six thousand three hundred twenty seven dead. Now, the University of Mexico, they Universidad Nacional Autónoma estimates that the that the pandemic has caused uh, uh, lost jobs. The researchers say um, that uh, that 16 million more people are in extreme poverty. That's from 22 million to 38 million since February. The studies show that the government spends 450 pesos per month, $20, on these people, that if the government spends 450 pesos per month, per person, $20 American, these people would not go hungry if the government does that. So far, there's no indication that the government's planning to do that. The total cost would be about 19 billion pesos. That would come to $847 million, which Mexico would have to borrow. Lost jobs, COVID-19 erases 1 million formal jobs lost since February. Those are formal jobs, regular paycheck jobs. Where is all this leading? Well, I'll tell you where it's leading. The former Mexican deputy finance minister speaks on what is going on under López Obrador. The coronavirus sweeps Mexico. López Obrador ignores it, ignored it up until recently, and watched as the pandemic rolled across the country like a national hurricane. Santiago Levy, he's associated now with the Brookings Institution. He, in in Washington, he is a former deputy finance minister. He writes in the Financial Times, that's an English publication, that Lopez Obrador is failing Mexico and setting in concrete all the bad things we can all see that make Mexico unable to work its way out in the future of this problem. The biggest mistake he, he, Lopez Obrador, is not injecting the government's massive resources into the problem other than a program to help small businesses, micro small businesses with micro loans of 25,000 pesos. By today's exchange rate, that's $1,120. He's not giving, not giving, he's not loaning, he's not granting, he's not laying out billions of pesos to help medium and large businesses, the ones who employ most of the people in Mexico. He ignores the medium and, and, and larger small businesses and the large businesses because Amlo believes in helping big business, he's bailing it out. He says, then get themselves out of the trouble. And that that's corrupted. That's what big business always does. They always count on the Mexican government bailing them out. But you see, Amlo brags he has never even had a personal credit card. He doesn't believe in debt especially public debt, because he says, only the little people pay it. This means, or thus, he will not do any US style help to business or direct cash to all Mexicans as occurred to most Americans uh, in the past few months. AMLO sits on the status quo. He's very comfortable at that. And he doesn't think the pandemic is anywhere near as bad as as it is. He bets his multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar Maya train and a new oil refinery in his home state, Tabasco, will bail the country out somehow. That those 18 billion dollars he's gonna spend that will take years to, to spend on, the projects will take years to complete, He thinks that $18 billion is gonna rescue the the country. Will that work? Santiago Levy does not think so. He does not think so. Well, I'm going to do some of the history of Mexico. So let's talk about Mexican history. I'm gonna start this segment today and we'll continue it in the future, and we'll cover, I'll bring you up to date, because to know Mexico today, to understand Mexico today, you have to understand the Mexico of yesterday. Mexico has a huge background uh, historically that most Americans, if you're an American, you're just not aware of it. The first major civilization of Mesoamerica, now that's a term, an academic term, Mesoamerica means Mexican. America. The first major civilization was the Olmecs, and that's spelled O L M E C S. They populated the southern state, or the the southern part of the state, what is now the state of Veracruz, and parts of Tabasco on Mexico's Gulf Coast. That is due um, east of Mexico City, uh, about 200 miles, I think. The main centers of their civilization, of the Olmec civilization, was in towns that we can find on a map today, Tres Zapotes, San Lorenzo, and La Venta. The Olmecs flourished roughly between 1200 and 200 BC, between 1200 and 200 BC, and are best known for giant basaltic sculptures of heads. I've seen some, in the the Anthropological Museum in Mexico City. They're huge, some of which are more than three meters high, so they'd be almost 10 feet high. What's interesting is that part of Mexico is not mountainous, and it's not swampy. I mean, it is swampy. And how they got those big chunks of basalt from the mountains to there, no one's ever been able to figure out. The Olmecs developed forms of writing and a calendar system, They influenced surrounding peoples and probably through trading. The Mexican Indians were big traders in the pre-Columbian days. They traded with the Inca Empire. A number of Olmec influences such as working with stone, observation of the stars, and the worship of certain gods were adopted by the Mayas who were to the south and east in what is now Yucatan, Guatemala, El Salvador, parts of Honduras, uh, Belize, and, uh, and even current day El Salvador. The Mayas developed a more sophisticated system of writing, astronomy, and a base five numeric system that used the concept of the zero a thousand years before Arab mathematicians did it in Western civilization. The Mayan civilization suffered some kind of catastrophe at the end of the classic period, That is between 200 BC and 900 AD. No one really knows the the research is going on and on and on. It could have been a huge drought. It It could be anything. Anyway, the magnificent Mayan civilization basically disappeared. After that, a new and brilliant Mayan period developed further north in the Yucatan Peninsula, Chichen Itza, which you can visit today. You can get a direct flight from, from Tijuana to Mer, Merida in Yucatan and be at, Chichen- at the pyramids in Chichen Itza and that area uh, within hours, within hours. Just north of Mexico City lies the ruins of Teotihuacan, where I have spent much time, by the way, it opens at 9 o'clock in the morning, and by golly, the first time I went there in 1968 as an adult, because I left Mexico in 1943, the Mexico City, I went to Tijuana uh, starting in 1946 and then worked there and starting in 1967. But in 1968, when I had my first vacation from the Caliente Racetrack in Tijuana, I went to Uh, Mexico City and Acapulco in December, of course, uh, the best time to go. And uh, that's when I got the, caught the uh, Natural Anthropological Museum and went to the pyramids at Teotihuacan and uh, drove out there and uh, rented a Volkswagen Bug. I was the first person in line to get in. I couldn't believe it. In fact, let me tell you about it. It's huge. There's the Pyramid of the Sun. You've seen pictures of it. And uh, which faces west and east. The Pyramid of the Moon, which faces north and south, which is smaller. And, and then the where the city was. Now, the first time I climbed it, I was huffing. I smoked in those days. Anyway, I still haven't figured out how the short little Indians that built this, uh, how they managed to climb it. These, these stairs were like 24 inches, like two feet. And you you climb, and you climb, and you climb, and and it's huge. So let me tell you what happened when the first time I got to the top. I got to the top. I told you it was 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, by this time, it was 10. But I'm looking right at the sun. The sun comes from the east, right? I'm looking right at the sun. And I thought, wow. No wonder they call this a pyramid of the sun. And then I turned around, and I experienced a bolt of lightning that ran through my body. It just shocked me. I said to myself, I'm all by myself. There's nobody else on the pyramid because most of the people don't get there until later. And I looked around in all directions and I realized that the first Spaniard that climbed up to the top like I did in 1519, that first Spaniard, was looking at one of the biggest cities in the world, Tenochtitlan, now called Mexico City. I gotta tell you, I was really, I was impressed with the very idea that the blood of the guy that that, that walked up there, climbed up there to uh, the first Spaniard, and the blood of the Indians that built this huge city was in my veins. And I've got to tell you, it really, really affected me. It's affected my whole life. So that's Teotihuacan. That's considered by some the most important of the pre-Columbian archeological sites. The origins of Teotihuacan are uncertain, although it is thought some of the inhabitants arrived from the from the Valley of Mexico to the south, refugees from the eruption of the Xitle, X-I-T-L-E volcano. Construction of the city probably started in the first two centuries BC and the civilization reached its high point between 350 and 650 AD. The following centuries were marked by invasions from the north. The Purepechas or Tarasco settled in the western state of Michoacán, which is north and west of Mexico City, and the Toltecs settled at Tutla, or Tula, T-U-L-A, north of the valley of Mexico. Tula, like Teotihuacan, ended up being sacked by invaders, although the influence of the Toltecs extended as far south as Yucatan, more than a thousand kilometers away. The Aztecs, who are also known as the Mexia, were nomadic, warlike people who arrived in central Mexico from the north. From the north means from what is now the United States, ladies and gentlemen from the United States, they worked their way south. They founded the city of Mazatlan, what we call Mazatlan today. Anyway, they came into central Mexico around the 13th century AD. They were not well received by the established descendants of the Toltecs and wandered around the area for decades until 1344, when, according to legend, they received the sign that they should build their city, Tenochtitlan. The sign was an eagle, devouring a snake on a cactus patch. The eagle and the snake remain the national emblem today. Now, these that doesn't say here, but these invaders from the north were called wild and bad Indians by these people who developed corn and grew corn and beans and squashes and domesticated turkeys. These were sedentary people. They were not wild and bad Indians. Well, their name for the wild and bad Indians were the Chichimecas, spelled C-H-I-C-H-I-M-E-C-A-S, Chichimecas, one word. The reason I know that is because when I first heard that word in a Mexican history class at San Diego State in 1960 or so, 61, From Dr. Abraham Nazaire, the foremost Mexican history scholar in in all of the United States, Uh, it it tickled me. And my best friend, who was sitting there next to me in the class in the lecture hall, and uh, he started calling me Chichimeca, wild and bad Indian. And years later, when I owned my bus company and I named all my buses like I like people name airplanes, you know, I had I had fifteen vehicles altogether. I named them all. Anyway. My biggest bus was a 47 passenger bus built in Texas and Mexico and a huge bus at the time. And uh, I named it Chichimeca. So my best friend, many, many years later, he he goes on to become a uh, a medical doctor. He's now in his eighties. He's about four years older than I am. And um, anyway, he calls me up one day and he goes, you know, I was in Mexico City and uh, coming back from San Jose and." in uh, Costa Rica where I have a house and I met some people, some doctors and their families. And uh, we went to uh, have uh, drinks at the El Presidente Hotel. and We were in the large bar area. He says, you're familiar with us. I said, yes, I am. And uh, it's the El Presidente was the El Presidente Chapultepec. Anyway, he says, they're having drinks and they started kicking around stuff about history, Mexican history. And my friend, Jim, is fluent in Spanish now. He wasn't back in the 60s, but now he is. Anyway, uh, he says, they started discussing Chichimecas. And he says, they turn around and they said to Jim, what do you think? And he goes, you know, I know one. Get it? <laughs> yeah. And when he told me that, I just burst into laughter. I hadn't been called a Chichimeca in a long time. Anyway, so the Aztecs were called Chichimecas because they were wild and bad and they were bad actors. They were tough soldiers. They were great warriors. So, by 1430, the Aztecs dominated the Valley of Mexico, modern-day Mexico City, and in 70 years, they expanded their territory to create the largest empire in the history of Mesoamerica. Only a few peoples were able to resist the Aztec onslaught. The purpechas of Michoacan the Tlaxcaltecas to the east, and some Mixteca tribes in the southern state of Oaxaca managed to fend off the Aztecs. The Aztecs used political alliances. They were very smart with neighboring peoples as well as strict military training among their young men to extend their empire. That is what Hernando Cortez and his two, 300, whatever it was, uh, rogues, <laughs> and <laughs> characters, bad actors from, uh, that he gathered up in Cuba and Spain to search out this fabled empire to the west of Cuba that was supposedly built of gold. Hernando Cortez. Next time, we will talk about him and what he did to conquer Mexico and how he changed the entire history of the world. Hernando Cortez changed the entire history of the world. We'll talk about that next time. In the meantime, again, this is Raul Lowry Contreras. This is the Contreras Report, Business Mexico. And I promised you, issue 110, by the way, I, I promised you that I would give you my email address again. So if you've managed to get something to write with, you can send me an email to Hispanic Commentator. That is one word h i s p a n i c c o m m e n t a t o r @gmail.com that is my email address you can send me anything you want if you want if you have a question i'll be happy to answer it if, and if you have a question I'll, I'll read it on the air and then i'll answer it for you as long as everybody, if you have that question somebody else does too Listen, I must appreciate you being there. This is so much fun, I can't tell you. Like telling you my Chichi Mecca story. I haven't been able to tell that to anybody in a long time. Yes, Raul Larry Contreras, Chichi Mecca, wild or bad Indian. Thanks for being there. We'll see you and we'll talk to you next time.